So uh, earlier this week, I put up some barriers, and uh, then I started working on this sermon, and I felt kind of conscious about it uh, because I put up barriers. Um, maybe you've done the same thing. I was, uh, I got invited to play some stupid game on Facebook. I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, <laughs> this person has invited me to play stupid games before, Mafia Farm and all those things, right? So, um, I, I, you know, I figured it, I couldn't just block that app. I just figured I needed to block that person. So I went to the settings in Facebook and I said, you know, no more, no more game uh, from this person. I just don't need any more recommendations for this person. But then I started thinking, you know, really, this is just a minor irritant, right? There's somebody who's really been bugging me on Facebook. And since I'm, since I've gone to the trouble of figuring out the settings of Facebook, there's a person who has been bugging me about politics pretty much all year long. Okay, we disagree on politics and they just won't shut up. And because they just post like crazy, uh, Facebook says, oh, here's a content generator. We make our money off content generators. I'm going to make sure everybody gets to see this person's politics. And so I kind of thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to unfriend them, but I just don't want to ever hear from them again. <laughs> so, so I went to, uh, I went to Facebook and I figured out how to block them. And then I figured, hey, you know, while I've had it, I'm on a roll here. Um, I blocked another person and then, you know, kind of, kind of cleaning house. I went to Twitter and I muted some people. And Twitter, if you block them, they know it. But if you mute them, they don't know it. So I muted a couple of people on Twitter. <laughs> so, and then I started working on a sermon on, on barriers and outsiders and things like that. And I thought, well, well, what have I done here? So, um, a kind of confession is good for the soul, but I thought I'd, I'd share that with you. Um, uh, the reason is that this week we're looking at the question of who is Christmas for? We've been, we've been talking about who is Christmas for, and today we're going to talk about whether or not Christmas is for outsiders. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we began this conversation. We, we said, is Christmas for, um, uh, people with a past? People with, with things in their, 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 we talked about skeletons in the closet. Christmas is Christmas for them, people who've got something in their past, maybe something they did, maybe something that was done to them. And what we saw is that Christmas is for people with things in their closet, skeletons in their closet. And then last week we looked at the question, what about people who are afraid, or maybe not afraid but have concerns? People who look at the situation of their life and say, say, you know, I don't like where this is headed. When I run the train down the track a few miles, when I run the film forward a few frames, I don't like the place this is going. And I'd like to trade up. Is Christmas for people who just flatly want a better deal? And what we saw last week is Christmas is for people who want a better deal. And so today we're going to ask the question, and if you have to leave early, I'll tell you the answer is yes. But the question is, is, is Christmas for outsiders? Is Christmas for people who are not on the inside? You know, um, we're all outsiders from time to time. I know not all of you irritate me on social media, but we have all been on the, we've all, we've all had the experience of being an outsider. Uh, I think all of us have had the situation where, where we felt that we were, um, uh, excluded, that there was a, an in-group and an outside group. I mean, that's pretty much what, what high school is all about. Um, every time I fly, I have that whole experience. I kind of rehearse what it is to be on the outside group, right? Because I, I show up at the airport and there's the TSA has a special line for people who aren't me and they go quicker. Um, then I get to the gate, the boarding gate, and they've got multiple lanes for people who aren't me. And then I get inside 
the, um, I get inside the actual cabin of the airplane, and there's the nice leather seats up front with the leg room, and they're not for me either. So <laughs> I go further back to the, to the cloth seats and no leg room. So uh, every time I fly, I have this experience of, of what it is to, to, to be excluded, to not be in the inside group, to not have the, the privileges or the, the access, the things that I want. But it's not just flying. You know, flying is just a, an example. In, in my case, um, uh, well, here's some more examples here. Um, uh, how many of us know our neighbors? You know, uh, in high school, we knew who the cool people were. Maybe we were the cool people. Maybe we just knew who they were, and they didn't know who we were. Um, but but that carries on uh, for different reasons, maybe. But even when we're grown-ups, we're, we're, we're living in our neighborhood, and uh, we may not know who our neighbors are. You know, we know they moved in a year ago. Uh, we wave to them when we take out the garbage, but but we don't really know them. We don't know who they are. And and even if you know your neighbors, you, there's people that you have decided you don't want to know, people who live outside your neighborhood. And so what we did is we took, you know, this is American ingenuity. We took the idea from the crowned heads of Europe of a of a gated community, and we democratized it. So you don't have to be royalty. Now everybody can live in a gated community. So we've done that because we want to be on the inside. We want we want to be on the inside. We want to be part of a community, but at the same time, we're very comfortable with the idea that the community should have boundaries and edges, that the community should draw a strong distinction between people who are on the inside and people who are on the outside. Uh, for much of my life, as I mentioned before um, with the children, uh, I felt like an outsider just, just situationally, it's the nature. When Margot and I have moved seven times, or we've we've moved six times, we've lived in seven locations in 25 years. Um, so we've had the opportunity to get to know a lot of people. We've we we get Christmas cards. We stay in touch. There's people who've been a part of our lives, but periodically we have to kind of start over again, and then we feel like we're kind of on the outside. Um, uh, uh, when I was I was thinking, I was adding them up. Um, seven times since I've been married, 12 times because I moved every year before I married Margot. So she's, she settled me down and now we're just moving every three and a half years. So, um, so, um, you know, I, I felt like an outsider a lot of times and I know a lot of you have done the same thing. Alaska is one of the more mobile states in our country. Only about 40% of the people who live in Alaska were born here. And that includes native Alaskans, but it also includes people whose parents were here when they were born. So if you count everybody, native and non-native, who were born here, you're still only about 40% of the state. And in fact, um, 5% of the people in Alaska right now were not here last year. So that's how much churn Alaska has. A lot of people move. In fact, in our whole country, only about uh, 40% of the country live in their place of birth. And of the people who are not living in their place of birth, about a quarter do not consider the place they're at now to be their home. When you ask them, where is home for you, it does not match up with where they're at now. For about a quarter, uh, Only about a quarter of the people figure that they're home where they are now. So we move a lot. That's one of the ways we, we are, we are uh, outsiders because we're always trying to find out uh, who, who the, you know, where is the inside of this new place I'm at. But we also have the other things, the, the things, that, the exclusions that, that are more obvious. Uh, sometimes they're trivial. Sometimes they're what kind of credit card you have, if you've got the cool credit card or the, the low-rent credit card. Sometimes they're much more serious. They're things like a segregation. So you see Rosa Parks there on the bus. 
Um, the insider-outsider divide can be can be it can be minor, it can be major, but the question is. Is it part of Christmas? Is God like us? Does God have an inside group? You know, so much of our pop culture, we hear the Christmas songs where we, we kind of blend the stories about Jesus and the stories about Santa Claus. Santa Claus has a list of all the good boys and girls. Is God like that? Do, should, should we kind of mix and match Santa Claus and Jesus? Because Santa Claus very clearly has an inside group and an outside group. You get cold if you're in the outside group. Is God like that? Does God have an inside group and an outside group? Is Christmas for outsiders. Well, our our scriptures kind of uh, tell us the answer. So I'd like to to look at this uh, passage uh, we we've seen today. Um, it's a beautiful story. It's only about four pages in my Bible. So if you if you say, well, I wish he hadn't cut out all the good stuff. Uh, please take it home and read read all the good stuff. So um, I've tried to make it fit in a in a in a sermon today. So. We're going to make a quick look at it. Um, the story here is, is as I mentioned before, somebody who goes to Moab. And for us, Moab is just a place. Um, it's, you know, somewhere not in Alaska. Um, it's in Utah, I think, right? Um, so, so you know, we, we just say Moab. You know, what's up with Moab? But Moab was a bad place. Moab was, was one of the worst places for an Israelite to go, and they wouldn't have gone if they hadn't been forced to. They went because there was a famine. So... Elimelech and his wife Naomi, their two adult sons, Kilion and Malon, they go to Moab. Not because they wanted to, not because there was anything they liked in Moab, but because they were forced to by this famine. And when they get there, kind of Moab works its magic on them. Elimelech dies, and then in short order, so do the two adult sons. Leaving Naomi without a husband, without any males in her life to take care of her in a, in a situation that would have been very perilous for her. Plus, she's got these two daughters-in-law. So she's really, she's really in trouble. And what we, what we hear is that um, she finds out, just kind of from the grapevine, that God has relented, that God has provided food to people back in Jerusalem, or back in Judah. So she decides she's going to go home. And she tells her daughters-in-law, she says, it's not going to be easy for a widowed woman in Judah. Um, so it's, it's not going to be easy for me, and it's sure not going to be easy for you because you're Moabites. She says, you all better stay here. This is your place, your land, your country, your gods. Stick to your place because it's not going to go well for you there. And Orpah hears this. The one daughter-in-law, Orpah, says, that makes sense to me. I will stay here. I'll go back and live with my family, and we'll see where things go from there. Um, but Ruth says, don't tell me to let go of you. She's actually, our, our, our translation is a little bit uh, insipid. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't give us the strength of it. Ruth is kind of hot under the collar here. She says, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. She says, don't you see? I am all in. I have, I have committed myself to this project. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. She says, that's it. I am done. Moab is history. I am with you. Don't tell me to go home. And so it says when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. It's interesting. Does she mean she quit trying to convince her to go home? Or does it mean they had an argument and they were silent with each other for a while? We don't know. 
But she said no more to her. But they get to Bethlehem, and when they do, everyone sees them. And uh, Naomi has returned at the beginning of the uh, um, the barley harvest. Now, we're just going to flash forward two, two chapters. What happens is they meet this guy named, uh, 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 Ruth meets this guy named Boaz. And Boaz says, I'd like to marry you, but there's a hitch. I can't marry you because there's this guy who's in the way. You have a relative who's called a kinsman redeemer. And what that means is in that society, there weren't a lot of kind of social safeguards. Uh, there weren't, you know, social security disability or anything like that. You basically depended on your relatives. So there was a hierarchy who among the relatives had first, um, first responsibility to take care of somebody. And there were usually some plums associated with it. Who got access to what little you might bring with you to that relationship? So there is this kinsman redeemer and, um, Boaz says, I'd like to marry you, but this kinsman redeemer has the first responsibility, so we have to give him the opportunity to say no. And so he sets up this, this little trap for the guy. Um, so it says, uh, uh, Boaz goes to the city, the city gates. He takes ten men of the elders of the city and says, sit down here, and they sit down. So he then says to the next of kin, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it, but if you will not, tell me, so that I may know, for there's no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. What's probably going on here is he's saying, you know, they disappeared. They went off to Moab ten years ago, and and they've been gone, and that field did not go with them. The field stayed in Israel, as fields do. And this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer, has first claim on the field. So when they disappear, as things, you know, as the famine ends or whatever, he starts farming that field. And Boaz catches the guy and says in front of this this uh, court, says, hey, you need to decide what to do with the field. Are you going to pay Naomi for it or, you, you know, if, and keep farming it? Or are you going to give it back to her? Because she's back and, and she has this right to this field. And the guy says, I guess I'll pay for it. I'd rather keep the field and and just pay her and then be done with that. And then Boaz kind of springs the trap. He says, by the way, uh, there's another thing that uh, Elimelech left behind. He left behind his daughter-in-law, uh, Ruth, the Moabite. And he says, um, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you're also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. So what he says is that is that uh, you have to have, or you're supposed to, you've gotten the good side of the deal. Are you willing to take the 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 responsibility associated with it too? Are you willing to take on the responsibility to marry Ruth and have children with her so she can have somebody to maintain the claim on this property? And he says, no. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then uh, uh, Boaz says to the elders, uh, Today you are witnesses I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired the Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. Today you are witnesses. So he says, he says, All right, I will take this opportunity. I want to marry Ruth, and I'll take the field too. And so he does. Everybody's a witness and everybody um, sees what he's doing. So uh, it has a happy ending. If you go on and read the story, uh, they have a child, a child named Obed, and then we read 
that he becomes the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. She is not left without anybody to take care of her in her old age. She has this son or grandson, Obed, who will take care of her. Now Naomi has a kinsman redeemer too, um, just like Boaz was. And so, so Naomi has a kinsman redeemer. And then we read at the tail end, it says Obed has a child, Jesse. Jesse has a child, uh, David. David goes on to be King David, the, the, the greatest of all the kings of Israel, and a whole line of kings come from him, as we have read in our passage at the beginning of Matthew's, uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matthew didn't want to go to the Christmas story without spending some time talking about these people, because Matthew knows Christmas is for outsiders. This is the message of the story of Ruth. Christmas, or in this case, um, kinsmen redeemers, are for outsiders. God loves outsiders too. And, and maybe the reason we don't appreciate how strong the statement here is because we don't know where Moab is. We don't know, you know, Moab, Moab's a place. But suppose this, this book were edited. Suppose we went through and we changed every place that said Moab, we changed it to the word Palestinian. And we said uh, they left Israel and they lived in Palestine and they brought back two Palestine, one of one of them, uh, Naomi brought back a Palestinian uh, daughter-in-law and uh, now she's going to marry into Israeli culture. That gives us a, a hint of what the, the d- disgust was between these two peoples. In fact, in Deuteronomy it says this. Um, can you show the slide? It says, no Ammonite, that's another country, or Moabite, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even in the tenth generation. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. The Deuteronomist says there's there's no role for uh, Moabites anywhere in the people of Israel. And yet we see just a few generations later someone with a lot more than one-tenth uh, or one whatever ten generations is, uh, someone with a Moabite a lot closer than that, becomes the king of Israel. So uh, the, the scriptures are telling us that God loves people that are on the outside. Boaz doesn't know it. Boaz doesn't appreciate what God is going to do through this. He just, he just has decided he wants to marry Ruth. But what we know from our perspective is Boaz is an almost perfect foreshadowing of what Jesus does. Boaz sees someone in distress, someone who is alienated, Boaz redeems them at great cost. Boaz makes them into a citizen. And Boaz marries them. This is what we say about Jesus. We say that Jesus found us when we were far more alienated than the Moabites. We were far more alienated from God than the Moabites. He saw us in our distress. He came to redeem us at great cost. And he made us citizens of the kingdom of God. He made us children of the family of God. And ultimately, what we say is that Jesus and the church are related as a groom and a bride, that the church is the bride of Christ. Ultimately, Boaz didn't know how much he would foreshadow Jesus. God loves outsiders. Christmas is for outsiders. So the question for us is, what do we do with this? How do we do the same thing? If you could back up a couple of slides. The first thing, as we think about this in our own lives, how can we be like Boaz? The first thing is to say it is going to be public. If we're going to be like Boaz, um, Boaz could have, could have said, all right, I've got this situation. Here's this, here's this Moabite 
No one can stand Moabites. I like her. What we're going to do is we're going to go to Vegas. We're going to get married. And then I'll stash her in my estate and no one will know. I'll still have my reputation out in the town square. Um, and no one will, no one will be aware. No one will be the wiser. No one will criticize me. It won't, it won't be a problem. But instead, Boaz says, no, I'm going to do this publicly. So he goes to the town, uh, the, the court, uh, the gate of the town and summons ten elders and says, I want you all to watch this. Boaz says, this is going to be public. I want everyone to know what I'm doing. So as you go out to your context this week and you say to yourself, if, if as a Christian, I've been given the opportunity to be like Moab, uh, to be like Boaz, to welcome the outsider, ask yourself, Am I doing something publicly? And the reason you probably will be tempted not to is because it's going to be costly. In in Boaz's uh, case, he had to pay something. He had to pay for the field. But we read in chapters 2 and 3, he's a wealthy man. He can afford the field. What it cost Boaz is his reputation. Boaz is the guy who married the Moab, Moabite. Boaz, these names are going to kill me. Boaz is the guy who's a Moabite lover. It makes me sick to see Obed, that little half-breed kid of theirs, running around. Boaz loves Moabites. That's what it cost Boaz. It cost him his reputation, and that's why he did it publicly, because he would have been tempted to do it on the sly. So he said, no, I'm going to challenge this head-on. I'm going to take this head-on. So everybody knows, including including King David, including the readers of Scripture uh, thousands of years later, everybody knows that Boaz challenged the idea that there was no place in God's economy for Moabites. To be gracious, to be like Boaz, is going to be costly to whatever degree it's public. So as you think about the situations in your life, as you think about what it is at school, uh, the, the, the kid who's awkward and, and isn't well-liked by everybody else. The person at work who's just too weird. I'll put a link to this on the webpage. There's a, there's a article that appeared in the Weekly World News in 1988, and it said your coworker may be a space alien. And it had a list of all the reasons your coworker might be a space alien. Basically, they don't fit in. That's what they boil down to. And uh, we read it for somebody at a luncheon. She was getting a promotion, and we read it because it, she, she scored 9 out of 10 on the space alien scale. The people we work with, the people in our neighborhood, the people who are not like us, that's who Christmas is for. And thank God for it, because that's our story. God found us. God saw us when we were in distress, when we were alienated from him. And he said, I'm going to reconnect you to myself. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back into my family. You will be the bride of Christ. Boaz had no idea what was going to happen. He didn't know about King David. He didn't know about Jesus. But God works in this place, in our efforts to be hospitable, to open up places for the outsider. That's the place God works. So let me just kind of close. You know your own situations, how it works for you at home or at work or at school. But I'd like to just kind of reflect on us as a church. Is our welcoming public? Is it obvious to people who drive by 
that this is a welcoming place? Is it obvious for people who show up with kids that we were expecting them and hoping that they'd be here today? Is it obvious when they get into this building? You know, I had the experience. God works in wonderful ways. Somebody told me a couple of weeks ago they were scolded for sitting in someone else's seats because we're Presbyterians and Methodists. We have assigned seats, and you're just supposed to know that. So I told them, the next time I hear that, I'm going to call them out by name, the person who did that. So don't do that. I caution you before the Christmas season began. We are having guests, and there are no assigned seats in this church. And so today, I was going to to make a whole point. And you know what happened today? God is so awesome. Somebody came and took my seat. So, so, thank thank you so much. God God did something today that's just so awesome. I just love that. Nobody ever takes my seat. And you did today. Because because God knew that was going to happen. So, I just just am in awe of the way that that works. Um, Are we welcoming? Not just... Not just uh, by taking Ruth off to Vegas. Are we welcoming in a public way? Are we welcoming in a way that costs us something? Because that's who Christmas is for. Christmas is for the outsider. It's for people like us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that Christmas is for outsiders. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to be like Boaz um, as you make us ultimately like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.